I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another week, folks. We are in week six of the South Dakota 2021 legislative session. We are over halfway through, kind of marching towards the middle of March uh, when the legislative session will wind down. This week is a big week. Coming up on Thursday, we have what is known in, uh, in the Capitol as Crossover Day. That is the day on which all the bills have to leave their chamber of origin and ho- head over to the other, the other side. Um, so the, our legislators are going to be working really, really hard, maybe a couple of uh, longer afternoons and, and maybe even to the, into the evening uh, a little bit this week. We're going to take a step back, and, uh, and many of you will know our, our regular guest and contributor, Professor John Schaff. He's a professor of political science at the Northern State University. I, I said that a little bit like the Ohio State University. Yeah. It's not the Northern State. At Northern State University, well, in South Dakota. It, it is now. It is now. It's the Northern <laughs> State University. As far as I know, it's the only one. So it's Is not, it the Northern State it's, University? It's, it's not grammatically inaccurate or it's inaccurate in truth. So Let's go with go. it. Yeah. <laughs> so Professor Schaff is uh, the author of many books and articles uh, publishing in both academic uh, places and in some more popular places online. And I'm also learning not only influential in the world of books, but also in the world of young minds and hearts. I keep bumping into uh, students or former students of his in our state capital who are just really grateful for the formation that he provides in this, this great thing uh, that we call the American experiment. So Professor Schaff, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. The state trembles in fear at the notion <laughs> the state capital is riddle, riddled with my former students. So. Well, it's a, I can testify. It is a great, great thing. Yeah. And I love, you know, one of the reasons to be serious here for a minute, one of the reasons I love bumping into them is because we have a common language. Yeah. Like we can actually, there's a common language of what a republic is and, and what a yep. well-formed citizen uh, yeah. is or should look like. So anyhow, we're going we're gonna to step into a very important topic today. Um, and kind of do a little bit of um, kind of legal history and background and bring it up to a current bill that's in front of our legislature. And that the topic is religious freedom. Uh, it's been called America's first freedom, of course, because it's, it's delineated in the very first amendment to our constitution, uh, the first amendment to the Bill of Rights, right up, uh, right up front. Um, so, Professor Schaff, where do we even start with a big topic like this? Well, let's start here, Chris. Uh, you, you, know, you just called religious freedom, the first freedom. Not only is it in the First Amendment, it's the first thing in the First Amendment. Yes. So the, the First Amendment says two things about religion. We can divide it into two things. The First Amendment says this, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And normally we divide that into two things. We call that the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. So Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. And normally in uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence, when we deal with Establishment Clause things, people should think about it as when the church as an institution or a religious institution butts up against the government as an institution, when those two things become entwined. So it's a lot of cases like um, religious exercises on in public facilities, like school prayer is an obvious one uh, from the 1960s. Things like when uh, public money goes to religious organizations, uh, that often brings up uh, establishment clause uh, arguments. 
Uh, on the other hand, then it says, uh, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that more has to do with the individual's right to practice his or her religion without state interference. Uh, although more and more, I think that individual is becoming institutions. Institutions, and we'll, we're going to talk about that, are claiming free exercise uh, rights. And free exercise would be things like your right to say uh, a prayer without interference. We can think of court cases like rights to educate your children uh, the way you want to, rights of Jehovah's Witness not to have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Even things dealing with conscientious objection uh, are often free exercise uh, cases, conscientious objection for war, going to war. But more recently, it's things like as uh, modern concepts of sexual liberty kind of run into religious liberty, we see things like uh, I'm a photographer and I'm asked to photograph a same-sex wedding. Do I have to? Uh, I'm an institution. The government is mandating that I provide contraception or even abortion services. Do I have to? Uh, and that's where free exercise is now. And when I started teaching this stuff a couple decades ago, all the actions on the Establishment Clause and when and, and I taught this in class, I said almost nothing about free exercise. Yeah. That's completely reversed. Yeah. And all the action uh, these days, or almost all the action, is on the free exercise side of things. And just to maybe give an image that is in people's minds when we talk about free exercise, we're talking about the little sisters of the poor, yeah, who have uh, who have been compelled to provide. Um, services in their health insurance plan for these nursing homes they run that they just can't in good conscience provide. We're talking about uh, abortifacients, et cetera. So, you know, that's a that's an image that just sticks in our mind and it's the government telling these sisters how to live their faith. That's what I mean. So the, the, when the state steps in and, and starts interfering with the individual, or in this case, gonna, uh, an, an institution organization, Little Sisters of the Poor, telling them, how they can practice their religion or making it difficult for them to practice their religion when the state is trying to achieve other ends. Yeah, and so there's this this right that's in the the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't, it. we, we need courts. Uh, that's why it's in the Constitution. We need courts to kind of help us figure out what are the contours of these rights. And we want to talk just a little bit about um, a, a case going back quite a way, Sherbert v. Verner. What, what do we What do we need to know about that case? Well, this John? is this is foundational. Uh, the the court largely kept his hands off of this stuff actually until well into the 20th century. But a foundational case for the free exercise clause is this case from 1963. Without getting too much into the weeds, uh, Adele Sherbert. She's working, uh, I believe, it was in South Carolina. And she was a Seventh-day Adventist in her, so her Sabbath was Saturday. And so her employer says, I want you to work on Saturday. She says, I can't, it's against my religion. And she gets fired. And she, and this is gonna be a theme, we're gonna see this in another case we'll talk about in a second. She applies for unemployment uh, benefits from the state and is denied because it said, well, you could work, you chose not to. And she says, I didn't choose not to, it was against my religion to work on Saturdays. All the way up to the Supreme Court, and what the Supreme Court does is it sides with Sherbert, right, with religious liberty. Yeah. And what it does is it is it is it stakes out two different um, standards to judge when there's a violation 
of religious liberty. The first thing is when someone's religious liberty is substantially burdened. Now that itself is a, is a question of what does substantially burdened mean? But when someone's religious belief is substantially burdened, the state may do that, but it has to show what the court calls a compelling interest. There has to be a compelling state interest if it's going to substantially burden your religious beliefs, your religious practices. And people might think of compelling state interest as something that the government couldn't function as it functions without doing it, right? right? Something that is fundamental to the operation of government. But even if the state can, I'm using state in generic sense, uh, the government, even if the government can show there's a compelling state interest, therefore they can burden someone's religious beliefs, they have to do that in what they call the least restrictive means. So the means of achieving the government's end have to be that which is the least restrictive to religious liberty. So the the two prongs, you might say, of the Sherbet test are state has to show compelling state interest. And even if it does show that, it's got to use least restrictive means. And the important thing, without without getting into a lot of um, Supreme Court jurisprudence mumbo jumbo, it's the way of the court saying, this is a fundamental right. When the this is the standard, yeah. this is the test that the court uses yeah. when a fundamental right is at stake. And so this is this is the court signaling. We think that free exercise of religion is a fundamental right. Yeah, and and it's uh, I appreciate that that the te- the technical term is mumbo jumbo. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's it's called strict scrutiny. So it's kind of yeah. the basic idea is that okay, my religion is being burdened now. Now it, it the kind of the burden of proof, if you will, shifts to the government, mm-hmm. and the government bears the the obligation to kind of show both of these two prongs. Just recapping here of yep. compelling government interest, so not something incidental to the government, like we're just trying to be more efficient, but actually no, this is really central to what government is and does, and the the restriction is is narrowly t- tailored to to fit that interest. So kind of those two yep. prongs. So that's the the Sherbert test, which. Uh, endures really takes us through a good three decades. Almost three decades, yes. Yeah. And then then that changes uh, in 1990. What some people on the court had gotten frustrated with in the ensuing almost three decades was playing the game. And I guess I I don't agree with them, but I understand the frustration of what's a religion, Mm. right? Um, What is, what does substantially burden mean? And there's a case out of Oregon, it's Unemployment Division of Oregon versus Smith, which I'll, I'll just real briefly give the background. Smith is yep. a guy, it's, it's gonna be important to note that he's a Native American, that's, that's important to the case. Yep. So he's a Native American guy who had uh, a, a drug addiction problem. He overcame that, that drug alcohol addiction and he ended up getting a job actually at a recovery center. Well, part of the uh, contract, is, is his work contract was not surprisingly, working at a recovery center, is he himself could not ingest illegal drugs. Yep. Well, the, the way the Native American stuff comes in is that Smith, uh, one of the ways in which he says that helped him pick his drug habit was he had gotten uh, kind of newly reinterested in Native American religious practices, yep. uh, which part of which the, the, the ceremonies he was going through involved ingesting the drug peyote, which is uh, hallucinogenic. 
And at the time, this is no longer the case, but at the time in Oregon, that was a controlled substance, i.e. it was illegal. Now, Smith was proud of this. He was proud of his religious beliefs, so he didn't really, he wasn't really shy about it. So his work ended up finding out Smith is ingesting this illegal drug. That's a violation of his work contract. He gets fired. And it's, that's why it's the same thing. He applies for unemployment uh, insurance. He gets denied because he was uh, fired for cause and because he violated the laws of Oregon. Of course, he says, no, I was practicing my religion. That goes up to Supreme Court. And here the Supreme Court, um, in perhaps Justice Scalia's uh, worst decision, uh, I don't know that there's many of them, but here's one. Yeah. The Supreme Court sides with the state of Oregon against Smith. And what it does is it scraps the Sherbet test and replies a very low standard test. Instead of the state having to show compelling state interest, all the state has to show now under the, the Smith test is a rational basis. In other words, the court just has, or the, the state just has to show they have a good reason. Yeah. And we might think laws against peyote are smart. You might think they're dumb, but it's not crazy that the state of Oregon should want to control access to certain substances. Right. So there's a rational basis to, to limit um, access to peyote. Um, so rational basis test. The second thing is, is general applicability. As long as the law applies to everybody, it's yeah. not a violation of religious liberty. So Oregon is not saying Smith or Native Americans can't use peyote. They're saying nobody can. Right. So it's a rational law applied generally. And then, therefore, the court says your religious objections don't get you out from underneath this. And there's a lot to be said about that. But again, the main thing we should know, that's why I brought up the, the, the fundamental liberty thing with Sherbert, is what the court is saying in Smith is essentially religious liberty is no longer a fundamental right. And so it's, it's, it's significantly downgraded. It's really given almost the lowest yeah. level of legal protection, not the highest level of legal protection. If you're just tuning in, this is Faith in Politics. Your host, Chris Motes, director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference, joined by Professor John Schaff, professor of political science from the Northern State University, Aberdeen, South Dakota. <laughs> We're talking about religious liberty, religious freedom, and I've kind of just walked through a couple of different legal standards that have been applied uh, to interpreting uh, our, our this constitutional right in in the, the last century. And Professor Schaff, you just gotten done describing how uh, Employment Division v. Smith really kind of just gutted the the really um, revered treatment we could maybe say that that was afforded under the Sherbet test. You know, this was this was 30 years ago now in the early 90s, and um, the this this decision of the Supreme Court wasn't the end of the story, so no, to speak. Not at all. So what what happened next? Well. The, the the decision in Oregon v. Smith or unemployment division of Oregon v. Smith was really unpopular. Uh, the proverbial lead balloon. And so, uh, what, four years later, uh, Oregon v. Smith is 1990. And in 1994, uh, the United States Congress passes something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RFRA. So we're going to call it a RIFRA. Right, which is what it's uh, kind of the common parlance. Our Religious Freedom Restoration Acts are called RIFRAs, uh, which sounds like something Scooby Doo would say, <laughs> RIFRA. Uh, but uh, but nonetheless, um, 
And what, what the RIFRA does, that we should know that uh, the lead sponsor in the House, or one of the lead sponsors in the House of Representatives of the RIFRA was Chuck Schumer. Yeah. Now, Senate Majority Leader. At the time, he was a member of the House. The, yeah. uh, another lead sponsor in the Senate was Ted Kennedy. That's right. right. It was signed into law by Bill Clinton. It passed unanimously in the House of Representatives. It passed with only three votes opposing in the United States Senate. Can yeah. we imagine any law today of any kind of import or controversy getting that kind of near unanimous bipartisan support? This is how wild, wildly popular the RIFRA was. Yeah, it was it, it was it was almost uncontested. Well, and just to give it a little more context, it was supported by both uh, Jim Bopp of National Right to Life and the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, who th- these two organizations don't find one another on the same side of any bill these days. Yep. Um, yeah, so but, just yeah. extraordinarily popular. Um, and so this is and what 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 the federal RIFRA does is it is it reinstates the Sherbet test as the test for religious freedom in the United States. But people should know this is in statute now. It is not a constitutional interpretation. So right. while the legal protections are robust, they are legal protections that exist as long as the legislation exists. So it's it's a it's the standard is the same standard as Sherbert, but but the protection is lower because it's merely a statute. Uh, it's not a, it's not an interpretation of the of the First Amendment, but it, it re- so the compelling state interest and the um, uh, 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 the, the means uh, yeah. least restrictive means test are reinstated yeah. now because of a separate Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court ends up saying that the federal RIFRA does not apply to state and local uh, governments. Yeah. So many states subsequently passed their own RIFRA. So many states have something that mirrors the federal law on their state books. South Dakota is one of, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, it's at least a minority of states um, that that don't have a RIFRA. Is that yeah, right? There's about 20 that, that, states? That's correct. I don't have my numbers in front of me, but it's, it's about 20 states that have it in statute, a couple, uh, and, a, and a good, I want to say, a 10 or so more uh, have it in terms of their, their constitutional interpretation of their state yeah. constitution. Whereas South Dakota, we, we neither have a statute, nor do we have any binding Supreme Court precedent from our state Supreme Court interpreting uh, the, the free exercise provision of our own state constitution. So really, um, it, we are in a minority of states in which that, that protection is just lacking. And then of course, then what has happened subsequently, we talked about how the RIFRA in 1994 was nearly unanimous in support. Well, that has changed uh, over the subsequent uh, 20-odd years uh, since RIFRA was passed, 25 years. Uh, and what has happened is the rise of kind of an, an aggressive legal and legislative push for, for, for lack of a better term, sexual liberty. So the rise of, say, same-sex marriage is the most obvious one, but things like, you referenced Little Sisters of the Poor, yeah. uh, the contraception mandate as part of the Affordable Care Act, and now we see some of the stuff coming up with transgenderism, is that there's, there is a, a conflict brewing between sexual liberty and religious liberty, and many of the people who were supporters of RIFRA back in the 90s 
because their their commitments to the sexual revolution and and uh, at a very broad, almost boundless view of sexual liberty, that's now running against religious liberty to the extent that I think if we didn't have a RIFRA today, it'd be almost impossible uh, to get one passed. That which was again, almost unanimously supported 25 years ago probably would have no chance and on the federal level that is uh would probably have no chance in passing uh passing today that's that's right um i i would agree with that and i would say too that proposals we've seen at the federal level in the last couple of years including one called um the so named equality act which is sort of a broad um i guess you could call it a non-discrimination law but having to do with these sexual liberties that you've mentioned, um, same-sex same attraction, et cetera, among others. Um, but also one more recently, 2019, um, I think it's called the Women's Health Reproduct- Reproductive Health Protection Act, something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a bill, it had 43 co-sponsors, the United States Senate, prime sponsored by um, then-Senator uh, Kamala Harris, uh, essentially a bill that would have codified, codified Roe versus Wade. These these proposals in recent years uh, explicitly strip federal RIFRA protections. So they're passing, you know, kind of these new broad sweeping uh, legislative packages. And at the same time, um, it's sort of removing the protections of this, this earlier mid nineties federal RIFRA. And it sort of tells you, Chris, the, this is the problem with, with the Smith case is that I was trying to, I, I think people should get the import of this is that, the, the the constitutional jurisprudence right now is not really on the side of religious liberty. Uh, we're relying on statute and what you're saying with, with the Equality Act and the, the Women's Health Act, it, it takes nothing more than a piece of legislation to strip this fundamental liberty out of federal law because the Supreme Court for now uh, has not seen fit uh, to reinstate the Sherbert test or anything like that and, and to treat um, religious liberty as if it's a fundamental right. Any, uh, any particular application to South Dakota as we're thinking about this? Well, I think you can, you can think of things uh, like uh, if there are cases where people wish to dissent on um, uh, uh, same-sex marriage or um, institutions that, that want to want to pursue their own religious goals free of certain mandates that might come from the state of South Dakota and uh, or people acting like you know, I teach at a public university, right? Do students, faculty, staff, do they have the right to say no to certain things uh, because religious liberty is held up as a fundamental right? And do I have protections in the law if I'm an individual uh, who's being asked to maybe serve in, like, in a, in a uh, consumer exchange uh, to force to do things I don't want to do that violate uh, my religious conscience is maybe uh, those of us who are state employees, are there certain protections that we can have in, in law that would help protect us? Or even if we, you know, we look around the country, Chris, at, at what some states have done regarding COVID. This has not happened yeah. here yeah. in the state of South Dakota, but the way uh, 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 religious institutions and religious worship have been severely truncated, if not all, all outright shut down in some states. Now, the Supreme Court has come to the rescue on some of those. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, if you simply have that codified in law, 
yeah. uh, in your state, it would be a lot easier to uh, to have that as a as a prophylactic, as a way of saying, yeah. don't even bother doing this because we've we've got this this fundamental right uh, demarcated in our statute. Well, and speaking of kind of the year 2020 and the the great surprise that w- that was for everybody, uh, you know, COVID-19, that kind of brings us up to Senate Bill 124, which is currently pending before the legislature. Actually, you know, as this episode airs on Real Presence Radio Tuesday night, it will have had a floor vote in the Senate uh, Tuesday afternoon. And um, Senate Bill 124, I know that that's something that the proponent of the bill really had in mind is, you know, in, in other parts of the country, we've got churches, mosques, and synagogues that are shut down. Meanwhile, casinos, bars, and liquor stores are, are open for business, um, which just, you know, it strikes something. It strikes me as just like un-American. I don't know if that's too simplistic to say it like that, but it just shouldn't happen in our country. Well, certainly, so they're, 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 the court has acted against New York and California, and the, uh, the absurdities uh, that you're pointing to have not been lost uh, on uh, on the court. And so why is it that, you know, in California, you could get a haircut, but not go to church and one was considered safe and the other unsafe, or you've got these, you know, these enormous churches where you could easily have some way to accommodate at least some congregants, yet they fall under harder restrictions. And if you, you know, right. want to go to the bar and have a drink and a burger. Um, and so, and th- these are the kinds of things we're worried about is when religion is treated uh, almost less than equal. It's not even equal. It's less than equal. Yes. Uh, with 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 uh, now, the fundamental of religious liberty is that religion really should have a sacrosanct. You call it the first liberty. It really yes. is above not all liberties, but almost all liberties. So it's yes. up there with all those things in our First Amendment. It's right up there as fundamental. But but. What some states are doing is, is like I say, is even less than equal. Uh, where they say there are burdens on churches that even you know the bar, the hairdresser, uh, the restaurant, you know the shoe salesman, they're not burdened by these things in the way uh, way that churches are. And so the, uh, a piece of legislation like 124 would be very helpful in putting that in in our statute. Yeah, it's, you know, and a lot of the, what we've seen in other states too has been the result of uh, executive action by a governor, you know, in the state of California, churches literally, uh, we're, we're cl- you could not worship in a church up until February 5th, you know, just a couple weeks ago. And that's just like unthinkable, I think, for us here. And you know, Governor, governor Cuomo in, in New York drawing these sort of redlining on maps of, oh, this neighborhood is shut down. Everybody in that, everybody in that neighborhood has got to stay home. Oh, by the way, it happens to be a neighborhood principally occupied by Orthodox Jews who, yeah. who have holy days and obligate, you know, religious obligations. Truly, um, it's, it's you know, and some of these things are kind of shocking to hear about if you're not necessarily following the headlines. But yeah. uh, nonetheless, we can hope and pray. Just be thankful for the place we live and hope and pray that that such action never happens here. So uh, maybe in the last 20, 30 seconds, uh, John, anything to close out? Well, yeah, so I, I, I think people should. Uh take note of these things and contact legislators. This is true on all sorts of pieces of legislation that you can find on the Catholic Conference website. Um, but, you know, there are always powerful forces uh, that work against religious liberty and, and things that are related to religious liberty, including uh, well-moneyed uh, forces who who would rather not 
not have some of these things. So I just encourage people to use their voice and try to counteract voices that are that are counter to religious liberty. Well, and I'm always grateful for the plug. Uh, for those of you listening in, want to learn more, you can go to SD uh, catholicconference.org. Again, it's sdcatholicconference.org. Thanks for joining us, Professor Schaff. Until next time, live well.